Hey, Sobertown. Welcome to SobertownPodcast.com. This is where you will find the wonderful recovery podcast episodes and tons of recovery-related resources, like Todd's blog. Some of his topics include how to manage cravings. We also have other topics like Rewired, how to get to Zooms, and so much more to support the sober warrior in you. My name is Viv, but some of you know me as Sober I Thrive on the IAS app, also known as I Am Sober. It's in your app store and you can use it as a daily counter of your sober free days. Check out the community too. This is where we all met so we can share our experiences with you too. Sobertown gives you the resources to create a life so full you will never want to mute ever again. So just come and visit and we'd like to see more of you. Our next guest is Ashes here sharing her wonderful, inspiring hero's journey through her recovery story to the present day today to inspire us all in recovery of our own journey. Good morning, Ashley. Thank you so much for being here. Ash, how are you today? I'm doing awesome. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to share my story today. Yes. <laughs> I'm about a little over seven and a half months sober today. Um, yeah, I'll be coming up on eight months in about a week. So I'm excited oh. about that. Going into a new school year teaching with eight months sobriety under my belt is amazing. So my childhood overall was very joyous, very supportive. I had lots of extended family that lived locally. To me, my grandparents were local. We spent lots of time doing activities together, like camping, skiing, boating, going to the beach, being by my grandparents' pool for entire weekends, family dinners. Um, and that was my immediate family and all my aunts and uncles and cousins too. So it was a very big loving family, not a lot of family drama, like fighting or anything like that. Everybody really got along very well. I have two younger brothers. We're all three years apart. Also something I wanted to kind of point out as I'm going through my childhood is that my grandfather was actually an alcoholic. He passed away in 2004, but when he passed away, he was... I believe 30 years sober. Um, So I did know about alcoholism and that it could run in my family. My mom would kind of talk about that a little bit with us when we were younger. It might be something to look out for, but it wasn't like a huge conversation or anything like that. And I did know throughout my childhood that my grandfather was huge in the AA community in his town. And my grandmother was huge in the Al-Anon community in our town. And that's something that they did regularly. So weekends, that's what they were doing. That was in my life early on. And I, it wasn't something that was hidden or shamed or anything like that. So basically, just a really strong foundation overall of values, encouragement, support, healthy boundaries. Um, One of the things that I remember from my childhood is that I really had... I could go to anyone when I was struggling with something. I had a lot of options. 
So if it was something I didn't really feel comfortable in my immediate family, like going to my mom or my dad for, I could, I would go to my grandparents' house. Like even in high school, I would get in my car and think, Oh, Grammy would be better at processing this with me. And I would just drive to their house and sometimes even stay over if the issue had to do with my mom or something like that. So I had a lot of options around me to deal with my stress. So I kind of wanted to talk about that a little bit, my stress and anxiety that existed in my childhood. Like I said, like no, no like huge trauma or anything like that, but there definitely were about like maybe two or three things that stick out that impacted me in those formative years. One of the things was that my middle brother, when he was born, he was born with a heart condition that they didn't know about until he was at a doctor's appointment. And everything happened really fast from the moment that they discovered this abnormality. And he was rushed by ambulance to the hospital. It was determined that he would need open heart surgery. The survival rate was not great. So it was a very scary time for my family. My parents stayed with my brother in the hospital and I was bouncing between my two sets of grandparents' houses. Those are some of my first memories. So I was about four at the time. And I just remember being worried about my brother, wondering when my parents would be back and wanting my mom and my dad to comfort me because I was scared and sad and worried just being really confused, not knowing what's going on. So my brother ended up having the surgery and he's still kicking today. <laughs> he still has to have regular checkups, but it was very successful and everything went very well. Something that happened was when my youngest brother was born, I had a lot of separation anxiety. I didn't want to be away from my mom I started school up again right around the time that my brother was born. And I gave a lot of difficulty getting on the bus. I would pretty much literally hold on to my mom's leg, <laughs> not get on the bus. And we'd walk home, we'd get in the car, and then we'd drive to school. My first grade teacher would try to coax me in. <laughs> and and I would go to school and stay there. But I remember it always being kind of a struggle in the mornings and not wanting to be away from my mom or my new baby brother because I was worried that the same thing would happen to him that happened to my other brother. Just some kind of underlying early on anxiety going on, I think, that I carried along with me throughout the years. I did notice throughout my childhood and even into my 20s that I seemed to get rattled very easily. So I think that anxiety just was something that I have lived with for a while. You carried it through because you yeah, not knowing how to process that at such a young age, it seems like. Yeah. And I'm sure the people around me, like I said, they were very supportive and loving and they were doing all the right things. But I just, I don't think I really was taught those self-soothing skills though. Everybody was focused on your baby brother living. Right. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and so I can understand how the self-soothing at that time in the formative years, we're not sure how to process that, not by lack of love, but 
lack of knowledge to say, hey, we've got a child in the hospital, and then they would come back. You're you're just seeing them come and go. And at such exactly. a very impactful, yeah. Exactly. Those self-soothing and self-care skills wouldn't come for me until way, way later on. <laughs> so another thing that stands out to me is um, I went to Catholic private school, K through 12. And I think the academic pressures really impacted me. I often felt that I wasn't good enough. I can remember this time in fourth grade where we were making this layout of the oldest house in our town. And the teacher made me redo it like three or four times. And I felt like it was good that maybe this after the first draft and she just kept having me go back to it and go back to it. And that kind of is a good indication of how all of my, how I felt throughout those years of elementary, middle and high school that I was just never good enough. And I I just had to keep adjusting and trying harder. And my best was just never good enough. Despite that, I got all A's and B's. I succeeded throughout it. And my parents never put that academic pressure on me. They were satisfied with the grades that I was getting. They knew how hard I was working on my homework when I was home from school. So that was more of something that was ingrained in the school systems that I was in. And then another thing that stands out is I had um, a long-term boyfriend throughout high school We were very much best friends. He was pretty much a part of my family. At that time, his parents were going through a pretty messy divorce, lots of bitterness and fighting and financial things going on. So it was a tough time for him. Um, And he spent a lot of time at my house and with my family and going on family vacations with me. He was the captain of the football team and I was on varsity cheerleading. So a little bit teen movie-ish. <laughs> but it, I mean, it was fun for a while until it wasn't fun anymore, but we were best friends. We were at the lake together. We were skiing together. He got along with my brothers. Great. So he was hanging out with my brothers too. But then um, a situation happened with my cheerleading team that would kind of color that whole uh, relationship for me. So I was on the varsity cheerleading team. And in the winter seasons, we would go co-ed. So we'd have male cheerleaders on the team to help us with our stunting, kind of give us more of a competitive edge when we were competing. So my cheerleading coach was a pretty toxic person. And she went out recruiting members of the football team pretty hardcore because they, a lot of them didn't play basketball in the winter. So they didn't really have a sport going on in the winter. So she went trying to poach, (laughs) I guess. And so one of the players was my boyfriend. And at the time I told him, you know, like, I really feel uncomfortable. I would feel uncomfortable if you came onto the team. This is feels like my thing and I don't really like want you doing it. And she kept, and I told my cheerleading coach that too. And she kept pursuing him and he gave into that and was on the team. So I was in this position where 
I, I just had to accept it. I felt and just move on. So he came onto the team. And one of the things that really hurt was that part of cheerleading, we had to have certain gymnastic skills. And it had taken me a really long time to acquire some of these skills, like months, like years for some of them. And my boyfriend came onto the team and he was able to acquire these same skills in a matter of days. And it was a really huge blow to my self-esteem. These things that when I achieved those skills, my gymnastics coaches were celebrating with me and felt like really great achievements. Then he was coming in and getting them right away. And it was just like nothing. (laughs) So that really messed with my head a lot. I no longer was having fun in my cheerleading practices anymore. Uh, It was stressful. One of the things that happened was I developed a huge mental block with my gymnastic skills that anxiety crept up. And I felt like if I did certain skills that I had, I would fall on my head and break my neck and die or be severely disabled. So there was a lot of fear coursing through me whenever I I had to perform those skills. And I would only do them when I absolutely had to, like during competitions or practice. I never would do them unless it was absolutely required of me. So that situation really messed with me. And that cheerleading coach overall just had no business working with athletes and students my age. And that's something that really stuck with me, the negative and toxic toxic things that she was bringing into our lives. One of the things that she had us do was keep a food journal And we had to write down everything that we were eating and she would collect them and write notes and criticize (laughs) things. And she was not a certified nutritionist, mind you. (laughs) So she really had no business doing that. I ultimately ended up quitting my senior year and I didn't cheer my senior year because it was, it just became a really negative, awful thing for me. I didn't really share much of it with my mom up front. She knew the stuff going on with my boyfriend, but she didn't really realize how toxic my coach had become. And she was a little hard on me even, you know, like, why aren't you going to cheer? It's your senior year. Why aren't you going to do this? And then I took out the food journal (laughs) and I was like, well, here's just a one example of the things that I'm exposed to on a daily basis. And she was reading through and she, was like really pissed and brought it forward to the administrators at the school. I mean, like she was looking at it pretty offended because she was making these meals for her her family (laughs) and someone's going in and (laughs) crossing things out and (laughs) writing suggestions. So yeah, that didn't go over very well. But that's a good example too of how my family had my back too, which is really the the biggest foundation of my childhood is that it was very overall, very supportive, but there were these kind of instances where there was some underlying anxiety brought on by other people that are, were not even your family, but in the peer group. And it sounds like, you know, where we're supposed to feel safe with people 
that are in charge, in charge of certain academics, right? right? So take us from there. What happened? Okay. So (laughs) (laughs) moving on from there, I ended up going to college. I went to the big giant state school in my state, which was the complete opposite of my high school and my schooling before that. For obvious reasons, I wanted the exact opposite. And the school, I my high school, everyone was really in your business. And I wanted to branch out. I wanted to be in a bigger environment. So I started at this school. I was very homesick. Um, like I said, I had that great big family at home. Um, and I missed that. So I did go home pretty frequently on the weekends during my freshman year. During my freshman year, my best friend, she was there with me from high school. And I think that was a little bit of a hindrance my freshman year. Instead of branching out and meeting new people, I kind of stayed back in my comfort zone. I wasn't really making new friends as much as I would have, I think, if I had gone there without that pre-existing relationship. Um, so she ended up transferring. She didn't like being in the the big environment. <laughs> so she ended up, ended up transferring to a smaller school. And that ended up being a good thing for me too, because then I started to branch out and I found a new group of friends. I had a new roommate. So we were all going out on the weekends, being social. At that point, drinking was pretty normal and... <laughs> Like as far as college yeah. standards would go, I would say. <laughs> nothing out of the ordinary and like not I wasn't noticing any huge red flags like with my behavior as far as drinking went. It was really only on the weekends. With that group of friends, we had a really good buddy system in place. So we wouldn't leave someone at a party. We also kind of knew which frats and parties were notorious for bad things going on. So we avoided those places. So we were pretty safe with our habits surrounding drinking too. Um, And around that time, I met my husband. We were in the same circle. So we were intermingling quite a bit. And we always seemed to kind of gravitate towards each other like magnets whenever we'd be at the same place. So there might have been a drunken makeout or two. We did. We where the love started to blossom. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) we actually grew up in neighboring towns, but just never were in the same circles at that point. So we never met each other until college. But he suggested that we hang out when we were home for winter break. So we had plans going into winter break to hang out when it was time for our date that we had planned. He tried to bail on me. (laughs) He said said it was because he was scared and nervous. But I, I said, you know what, I changed things around so I could hang out with you. You're hanging out with me tonight. (laughs) So we ended up having our first date. And everything was a very natural progression with him. From there, it's been a very healthy relationship from the start. 
in fact, Matt was just telling, my husband was just telling his mom about how our relationship has gotten so much better in sobriety. And she's like, you guys have always had a good relationship. (laughs) But we really, we really have always like just been inseparable from the time we met. So junior and senior year, our drinking habits remained pretty much the same, like just drinking on weekends, nothing crazy. Um, I did like notice at that time, I think as college was coming to a close that I didn't like some of the things maybe I said to people like when I was drinking, like I would have like regrets like in the morning, like, oh, I really shouldn't have said that. (laughs) That was really rude. Um, Stuff like that, but nothing like really like alarming or dangerous or anything like that. Was it the blackout? type or you still remember um, it was just no I wasn't blacking out at that point it was more of I was more brazen and bold right. uh, um, and <laughs> normal me is not like that at all <laughs> so so I would say things I wouldn't normally say if I hadn't right. been drinking so I was noticing that and like even having to like apologize sometimes in the morning so I wasn't liking that at that point So um, we ended up graduating. I had figured out kind of towards the end of my undergrad that I wanted to be a teacher. Um, I had been going for speech language pathology before, and I just wasn't liking some of the classes as it got further towards that would be my career. So I kind of switched late, um, and that required me to go back to school after I graduated um, and go to grad school. So I figured that out with a grad school, how I could get my certification to teach and then continue on and get a master's from there. So I did that and um, I did the classes required for me to be certified as a teacher. And I started, I got a job at a private special ed school in my state. And around that time, Matt and I got engaged too. Um, so that was an exciting time. <laughs> yeah, congratulations. That's it. it is an exciting time. Yeah, new new job, planning a wedding. At that time, drinking was still just like celebratory, never weeknights, always weekends, very social. So around that time, Matt and I moved in together. We bought a house and we had our our big wedding. We were the first to get married really in both families and like circles of friends too. So it was really celebratory. Everyone was super excited. I didn't, I was kind of a little bit weary. I knew I wanted to marry Matt, but I was a little bit wary about getting married so young because I was only 24, I think. And, uh, but it ended up being awesome because it's just like very fun and exciting. We had our honeymoon in Aruba and it was just awesome. Sounds like a fairy tale. Right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that part. (laughs) (laughs) So the next few years, drinking continued to be very social, but it was amping up during those times. How could you tell? The amount we were drinking on weekends was increasing. The people we were hanging out with were heavy drinkers. So we both were kind of trying to keep up with that and... And then we started drinking during the week sometimes too. At that point, it wasn't some like a lot. It was like we'd split a bottle of wine or like a six pack or something like that. 
But the school that we worked at, my husband worked at the same school as me. So we had all the same group of friends. The school we worked at was a special education school. So this school, other surrounding school districts and even school districts from other states would send students that they couldn't meet their needs in their own public school setting. They would be sent to us. Most of the students were residential. There were some local that would be bused there, but most lived there. There was a lot of aggressive behaviors from these students and self-injurious behaviors like pulling hair, scratching, biting, getting, kicking, banging their own heads, biting themselves, just a lot. And these types of behaviors were something that would be witnessed there on a daily basis. So just a lot of really like intense aggression on a daily basis. And this school setting didn't really acknowledge that, that it was a stressful place for their employees to work. So there weren't a lot of resources or support. It was just kind of a fend for yourself thing. I think that kind of set the tone for a lot of problem drinking when you're not at work (laughs) to happen because you're looking for an outlet from all of that kind of violence that you're witnessing. Right. Plus you're still, this is your first job. You, you know, your first place of employment, really um, exercising your skills that you've already learned. Mm -hmm. So then you're set into the setting and now, you know, the coping mechanism starts, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I think the tone, (laughs) the, it was starting to, the stage was set, let's say, Mm -hmm. for that to progress as it does. Right. (laughs) But at that point, it was very social. It was when we were hanging out with other people. There were people that we hung out with that were worse than us with drinking habits. So there was that comparison of, oh, I'm not like that person, you know, that person might have a problem, but I don't. (laughs) I'm not that bad. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. At that time too, we had like one couple in particular that we would hang out with the most. Um, I was really good friends with the wife, my husband with the other husband and me and that girl were very much partners in crime. Like we were always trying to find, you know, the fun we could be a little disastrous together sometimes <laughs> and probably really annoying <laughs> to other people around us. You guys but, were having a good time. <laughs> yeah, but we were having a grand old time and we, like we would egg each other on and it just wasn't probably a great situation. So that's kind of how things went for a few years. And then in 2013, I had a situation in my classroom where this man came in who we contracted with to work on helping me come up with a behavior plan for my students. So he came in and was observing me working with my students and my staff working with my students and giving suggestions. I started noticing some behavior from him that got increasingly um, uncomfortable He would make comments about where things were in reference to my body in a really like weird way. And he just would get in very close proximity to me when he was talking. And I just, all the, 
alarm bells and whistles were going off inside my head. So I um, brought that to the attention of my principal at the time. And he said, you know, like, we're going to terminate this relationship with this person that we're contracting with. And, you know, it's going to be done. You don't have to work with him anymore. So that happened. But then several months later, they actually hired him to work at our school full time and work on behavior with the students at my school full time. And I was beside myself because I had brought all this information about his be- his behavior <laughs> forward. So I went to my principal like, you know, do you not remember this that happened a few months ago and he completely gaslighted me and acted like that. I never brought any of that forward and basically saying that I made it all up and he didn't remember anything about it. So he didn't write anything down and he totally denied. I I have no idea what he did with the information that I gave him, but he, he obviously ended the contracted relationship at that point. But I don't think he went as far as maybe to contact that person's employer and bring it to their attention. I think it kind of just stopped at like, we're not working with you anymore. And that's that. So he ended up working with me and my students again. The behavior kind of picked up where it left off. And then it got increasingly worse from there. Still doing the close proximity thing. One time he was even talking to me and I kept taking steps back to the point where I was cornered behind my desk by him. And luckily, one of my staff came in and saw that and was able to kind of make a distraction (laughs) to get him to stop. So as that continued, I brought it to the attention of administration again, and they were going to look into it and nothing was happening And um, I was walking down the hallway to my classroom when he saw me from the other end of the hallway and was shouting out to me. And I said, I'm I'm busy right now. I'm going to do something like I don't have time to talk to you right now. He kept pushing and then ended up chasing me down the hallway, like literally chasing me down the hallway. And I, I had to run to get away from him. And I ducked into an office of one of our administrators and I closed the door. And he was trying to get into the closed door after me. And it was terrifying. I was scared how far this person would let what his behavior escalate. And it was frightening. So I brought all this information forward. Um, He was put on administrative leave while they investigated. And the end result ended up being that um, they found everything I said to be untrue. And they said that they thought that I was making it up. Victim blaming. Yeah. This one HR lady even went as far to say, some of us even thought you should be reprimanded for this. And I was so confused. (laughs) Like, what are you talking about? So I was very upset. Probably in hindsight. I mean, I was very naive. But in hindsight, I wish I would have started looking for another job at that point and not accepted that behavior and that treatment. But I continued working there. Like I said, I had all those friends there and it was just more comfortable, even though that situation existed, it was more comfortable for me to stay. 
So I just stayed at that point. I shifted my focus on starting a family with Matt. So I put all my energy into that. They removed him from your proximity. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I didn't have to work with him anymore. But he was still working in my school building just with other classrooms. He just wasn't allowed to work with me directly. Right. So that gave you a little bit more space. Yeah, that gave me at least a little bit more of comfort. And I don't think I added this before or told you this before, but after I ultimately didn't work there anymore, he ended up getting himself in trouble for the same behavior. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he ended up getting canned for that yeah. behavior. That behavior is, is something <laughs> already owned. So it's kind of hard to keep hiding it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Especially when you're getting away with it constantly. <laughs> right, right. There comes a point that it's going to come to a head. Yeah. As so a- I was happy to hear that. <laughs> I caught wind of that, and that made me a little bit happy. <laughs> <laughs> so then you're focusing now on the next sta- stage. Of- yeah, I'm, I'm focusing on the next chapter. At that point, I cut down on going out on the weekends with those friends, and Matt and I stayed home home more. And we weren't around the partying as much because we were focusing on starting a family and building healthy habits. So I got pregnant not long after we decided that. And we were ecstatic, very excited, very happy. Obviously, drinking stopped altogether then. (laughs) Um, Around that time in February, we were going on a ski vacation with my parents. And it was my birthday. And it was our first night there. And I woke up and I was bleeding a lot. I mean, as soon as I saw that, I pretty much knew what was going on. But like, I called my gynecologist, they said, go to the local ER. So I'm going to this hospital I've never been to before, because I'm out of town, ultimately to be told that I'm suffering a miscarriage. So that was a huge blow. I was only about like six to seven weeks along from like external sources and myself. I had kind of this mentality of suck it up. Like you weren't that far along. It's not that big of a deal because that's already what I felt like. And then I had comments being made around me that kind of supported that. So I didn't really grieve or anything like that. There was no self-care. There was no self-soothing, nothing like that. It was really just suck it up, like move on, get over it. No validation of your feelings, right? Yeah. Not so sorry. And Matt too. I think Matt actually cried more than I did when we were told by the doctor what was happening where I had maybe like a little bit of acknowledgement of my feelings. Matt had none. It was a really hard time for him to, um, his sister, my sister-in-law was just doing things that were very insensitive and mean and just writing passive aggressive stuff on Facebook about me, which is why I'm not on Facebook anymore. (laughs) So it was just a really awful time. And I became pretty emotionally numb around that time. Work was kind of like just going through the motions. I I remember you telling me, and I think this is kind of important if you'd like to include it. When you were dealing with the miscarriage, 
you had explained to me that your your feelings you were you didn't know how to acknowledge them because there's so many mixed feelings that goes along with it. Yeah. So around that time, the only really the only way I knew how to soothe myself was with alcohol. So there was one night because I I was still at that mountain resort that whole week, basically miscarrying my child all week, and I used alcohol at night to really deal with that. The drinking just kind of picked back up to where we left off once the miscarriage happened. To mute the feelings. Yeah. So whereas we were trying to build healthy habits before, then it just went, well, for me, at least it went right back to just using alcohol every which way I wanted to. The spring of 2014, the drinking continued to deal with any feelings that popped up. And I was very, as the leader and teacher, I was very withdrawn, I'd say. I had about six paraeducators working under me. So in addition to having six students in my class, I had an adult that worked one-on-one with each student because their needs were so intense that they needed that level of care. So that's not something I learned in school necessarily, how to manage six adults <laughs> in my classroom as well. They don't really, that's not in any education courses <laughs> typically. So that's something I kind of struggled with the dynamics. And like I said, it's a very stressful work environment as it is. So I didn't know how to manage that for them and create kind of a healthy dynamic for them. So around that time, I did recognize that there was sort of a storm brewing within my classroom between these women that were working with my students and they kind of separated into two groups and it was one group against the other. It was a very unhealthy dynamic. They were vying for my attention and validation. That was something I'd never experienced before and I didn't know how to deal with that. And the two groups of women just really just didn't like each other. And it was just getting worse and worse. And I mean, looking back, I maybe could have done something to intervene. And I used to play that game with myself a lot. And I try not to do it anymore because it is what it is. So what ended up happening was two of those women made allegations about the three other women of child abuse and neglect. Um, So obviously that, you know, got the wheels turning for a lot of things to come. So the three pairs that were accused were put on administrative leave while they investigated. I was inquiring about what was going on that day at school. So I was sent to HR and I was put on administrative leave. And at that point, I became somewhat of a scapegoat for the whole situation, someone higher than the classroom aides to blame. And I'm sure stemming from the previous situation where they didn't like me accusing someone of sexual harassment, it was kind of, it probably was a two birds, one stone type of deal too. Obviously the parents were very irate when they caught wind of these allegations. So they, 
they wanted charges pressed with the local police. So that happened for not against me, but against the paraeducators in the room. I had to go down to the station and give a statement, which was basically I that I never had witnessed any child abuse or neglect. And if I had, I would have reported it right away. It's not something that I would ever tolerate. So the fact that people were even questioning that was such a huge blow to me. If anything, like I was probably closer to these kids than a a teacher in public school because they were residential and um, they didn't have their parents around if they were residential. So I was trying to somewhat fill that need for them too. I loved them so, so much. I would never let anything like that happen to them. So it hurt to go through that. So ultimately, I was asked to resign from that school. And that was devastating to me. That was just another, we don't have your back at all. We're not going to support you. And these people knew who I was. And they knew that this wasn't my fault, that this was happening. And they just were quick to just blame me and want me out. So I resigned. Um, It was the beginning of the summer, which ended up working in my favor because public schools were hiring. So I got my resume together. I got letters of recommendation very easily because I was a good teacher. (laughs) So when when I asked, I got three with no problem. But at that time, the drinking started becoming nightly and a lot when I did. Right. Not, not blacking out, but not healthy either. <laughs> Let's ramping say. up, ramping up and progressing as it all, it all does. Yeah. And, and definitely medicinal and not a social thing. It became, I would drink by myself. So that summer was very much business by day, trying to find a job, going to interviews, party by night <laughs> and drinking. <laughs> We were still hanging out with that couple a lot too. And they would literally like come pick me up and then we'd pick up drinks and we'd be drinking all night. But anyways, so then I... That that was the way to self-soothe. I mean, again, each and every blow brings us closer to what we know is the only way at that time to self-soothe is with alcohol. Yeah, and I, I think at that point at 28, I had lost really two pieces that I were part of my identity back to back. Like I lost being a mom. I thought that was going to happen. And then I lost my job that I'd had for five years. So it was just two major things just like ripped away back to back. So I ended up getting a job at the public middle school I'm at today. And that's ended up being an amazing thing. So that's something very positive that came out of that whole situation. So I was at this school for about two months and I got a call that the parents were going to be filing a civil lawsuit based on the allegations that those two women brought forward and that I would be named in this lawsuit as a defendant. So (laughs) So it's another blow. Yeah. (laughs) It's another blow too. After I felt like I had like risen out of the ashes 
And I was trying to move on. And I thought, I'm at this new school. Everybody's super nice. This is great. Um, they're supportive. Like I noted, I was already noticing ways that I was supported that I wasn't at the previous school. Like they actually like let me take my break. <laughs> like that's a big thing. <laughs> that was something new to me though. <laughs> so yeah, it was a huge blow. So I was appointed a lawyer as part of that lawsuit. I still was covered under the school, the previous school's insurance. Thankfully, I had a lawyer to support me. I was put on administrative leave at my new job, which was really embarrassing. <laughs> I just started there two months prior. So that was something that was really mortifying. But at the same time, I understood that they needed to do their due diligence and make sure I was legit. <laughs> Another thing that happened when the lawsuit broke was that I was named in a couple of newspaper articles and that was another thing that was really hurtful. Just like saying that, oh, so-and-so at this school is on administrative leave because of blah, blah, blah. And it was just, that was really hurtful and devastating. But my lawyer had a connection with the local newspaper that people in my school community would read. So we got a more positive article written about me, about who I really was. Almost as a retraction. I don't, not really as a retraction, more of this is who she really is type thing, I think. Yeah. And and yeah. then I was saying that I wasn't agreeing with anything that was being said in the lawsuit, that I was denying their claims pretty mm -hmm. much. So that began the process of this civil suit, which ultimately lasted two and a half years total. So the actual lawsuit, I had to sit and go through it was very lengthy, all the documents, and I had to sit and go through all of the claims in them. And I don't know if anyone's listening to this that's a lawyer out there, I'm probably using legal terms incorrectly. <laughs> but this was my first little run in with the legal system. So but I had to go through all the claims in the lawsuit and answer to them essentially. And they were the most ridiculous things being said about me that weren't true. Because first of all, the parents kind of took what the women said about the other women, the abuse, and said, well, if they were doing it, so was she, like about me right. in the lawsuit, which, I mean, I was dumbfounded when I read that. And I said to my lawyer, like, how can they do that? Like, no one said that about me. How can they even do that? And I guess they can just kind of throw whatever they want out there and see what's going to stick and what will hold up. So that was really hurtful to read those things just spelled out on, about me that weren't true in a formal document. Anytime I had to do anything involving my lawyer, like read a document like that, or he would email me things with attachments to look at and respond to. And I would start like shaking, crying sometimes, have trouble breathing. And at that point, my first thought was, I need a drink. Right. Anytime something like that happened, if I saw my lawyer's name come over my phone, it was like, all right, 
let's fire up the <laughs> martini or whatever it was I wanted that night. And I was drinking through all of it to soothe my stress and anxiety were just like just new, whole new levels that I had never experienced before in my life. A lot of that physical anxiety, not being able to sleep at night, it was really keeping me up at night. And then I had the alcohol adding to that too. So I'd wake up at three in the morning, just not able to sleep, then immediately start thinking about the lawsuit. It was just a really, really horrible two and a half years. And I did a lot of thinking at that time. Uh, like I totally put off having a baby. My thinking around that time was, oh, I can be happy when this lawsuit is over. So I was in kind of this purgatory, I felt like. Because I section, you had to move through it. Like it seems like such a short period of time when you had the person at your work that was basically making you feel uncomfortable, occupying your personal space, no one doing anything about that. And then shortly thereafter, you were pregnant and you have the miscarriage. So one thing after another, and then after that, you have to manage at the same time these the stress of all the situation with the, with these women going at each other and then the they're pressing charges and you're just barely getting your head up of, off of one thing when another come and another come and it's a wave and it's a wave and the only way that for me it seems as a listener and in talking to you the only way to self-soothe was with alcohol mm-hmm. yeah a- and i it was my only friend to be honest because there wasn't anybody out there that I knew that could relate to what I was going through. I didn't know anyone who had been sued for something in their career before. I I didn't know. (laughs) Oh, and another thing at that time too, I did seek out therapy with while I was dealing with the lawsuit and they wouldn't take me on because I had ongoing litigation. And that was another thing that was another blow because I was like, I'm trying, I know, like, I'm not managing this and I'm trying to reach out. And I mean, I, if I had continued to try to find someone, I probably could have that would work with me despite the litigation, but that door was just closed. That was my first attempt to get help. And I was like, well, fuck that then. (laughs) (laughs) Let me go get a drink. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. No, totally, <laughs> exactly. totally. Yep, my alcohol is always there for me. <laughs> right. It's, <laughs> it's not saying that it has to wait, and it's always at that disposition. It's the easiest thing that's being commercialized and pushed and in our faces, yeah. you know? Absolutely. So what happens? So you're at the new school as all of this is still happening. Yep, I'm at the new school. They did their due diligence, and I was able to come back on. That only took about a month and they were very supportive and they always have been up until this day. They're very, they're very team Ashley. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's been amazing. So the lawsuit went on for two and a half years. Like I said, there were ups and downs throughout it. I don't want to talk about it too long because (laughs) just doesn't deserve that. So it ended up settling in 2017 it was settled for an undisclosed amount. 
And I felt very unsettled because it wasn't like, okay, she's not guilty. This isn't true. That's not what happened. It was like, okay, we're going to settle this with money. And that's that. Right. So I never really got like, I kind of wanted it to go to trial because I wanted my stamp of like, no, like I didn't do any of this. Like, and I never got that. So it felt, it was kind of a lackluster ending, I'd say. Something that surprised me around that time is that my drink, my daily drinking continued. I thought, you know, I had all those things in my head when the lawsuit's done, this, that, or the other thing. And it's just not the reality of how things were. Um, and one of those things was I'll get my drinking a little under control. Like I won't be drinking daily. But I continued to drink daily. Something that happened not long after the lawsuit settled was that my anxiety remained. And if anything got worse, because now there was no longer something to blame for that anxiety. It was all unexplained and exasperated by my drinking, which I didn't connect the two at that time. And that's when I had it. I started having panic attacks and I had my first one in the car. So I was driving and I had to go a different route home. There was a detour for construction. And I, it started with me getting annoyed that I had to take a detour because it was going to take more time for me to get home. And then it just snowballed from there into a full-blown anxiety attack. Um, and I felt like I couldn't move. I felt I was shaking. I felt like I couldn't feel like my fingers or, or my toes. I thought that if I continued driving, I was going to die. It was terrifying, something that had never happened to me before. So I pulled over. I called my husband. I said, I don't know if I'm going to make it home. I don't, I can't drive my car. And he's like, what do you mean you can't drive your car? <laughs> and I explained the whole thing. And he ended up able to coach me home. He stayed on the phone with me and I was able to make it home. And then we went to the liquor store <laughs> and I quelled all that built up anxiety with a bunch of fireball shots. And thus began, began that, that cycle of anxiety, drink, anxiety, drink. That's what I lived in for quite a while. Around that time, too, my dad's drinking had become out of control. He was day drinking. He was starting to have health issues and physical withdrawal symptoms when he did try to stop drinking. My mom, you know, was trying to get him to stop. And um, he ended up quitting cold turkey. <laughs> And he's still sober today. Wow. Um, yeah. So he's a little over four years sober now, which is great. But at that time for me, I had that example of, see, I'm not like that though. <laughs> right, right, right. It so I was still doing the comparison thing as our, our addiction will do to justify our behavior. So see, I'm not like my dad. I'm not having those withdrawal symptoms. Like it's all good. And just the aftermath of the lawsuit around that time, like I really didn't have any support outside of my family. Like I, my friends all went by the wayside. I didn't want to hang out with anyone besides my family because I was very embarrassed of the miscarriage and the lawsuit. And I felt like I had nothing to talk about. I had nothing that I could relate to with them anymore. They were 
you know, getting pregnant, having kids, um, having happy, good things happen in their lives. And I felt like if I hung out with them, I would be a damper on all of that. And that I just didn't want to be around people. My self-esteem was very low at that time. I had a lot of hopelessness at that time too, especially concerning having a family. I thought, you know, it's too late now. It's just not going to be, it's not on the table for me. And a lot of, a lot of really hopeless thinking. Which is actually like alcohol that we now know is a depressant. Yeah. So even if those feelings felt so real, just trying to quell them with, with alcohol just exacerbates. Right. So my anxiety would amp up and the depression, I start, I started um, missing work a lot too, especially on Mondays. And I would stay home and I wouldn't be having any fun. I'd be on the couch, like wallowing, like just so depressed or anxious or both off and on. (laughs) Sometimes I would be drinking um, when I stayed home from work. Most of the time though, like I would be trying to feel better so I could make it the next day. But my hangovers were getting so bad that sometimes like I couldn't even get my shit together on Tuesday. Sometimes it would like go to Wednesday and it would just like, it was just really, really awful. And the funny thing is as bad as it was at that time, I was still not going to admit that it was my drinking. Nope. It was, it was my anxiety. I would admit that, but, but it was not my drinking. So around that time, like fall of 2018, it kind of came to a head, my behavior, my way of going through like missing work, my anxiety increasing, my drinking habits getting worse and worse. So I was called into the office to talk with my principal and assistant principal. And they said I was missing too much work. It was always Mondays, sometimes more, like I said. <laughs> and there, they also had smelled alcohol on me from the night before one time too. And they came to me not in a punitive way at all or a shaming way whatsoever. It was very gentle and very like, hey, like this is this behavior is not okay for our organization, but also we love you and we're worried about you. And what can we do to help you to fix this? Um, because we want you to get better. Yeah. Compassion. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 100%. And they knew the lawsuit history and all that and the trauma that I had been through with that. And they knew I wasn't in therapy and they gently, you know, said, maybe it's time to talk to someone about this. <laughs> and I explained my story about how I tried to go to the therapist before and was shut down because of the litigation, but I said I was willing to try again. So I started therapy at that time and I was not honest with her about my drinking habits at all. Because it wasn't contributing to your... No. (laughs) I think like way back in my mind, I knew, but I was not ready to admit that because that would mean that it would have to go away. (laughs) Right. (laughs) As it does with all of us, right? That's the last thing that we're like, oh, maybe it's this. No, maybe it's that. No. Could it be the drinking? No. No. (laughs) 
definitely not. <laughs> so what happened? So what happened at that point? I was very honest about my anxiety and and the thoughts that I was having. I don't think I had really said it out loud, like how dark my thoughts were going at that point. So I share, I did share all of that with her. And we did a lot of reframing and cognitive behavior therapy. She gave me book suggestions like Brene Brown's books. And I would, I would do my homework and I would read them and come back with my thoughts on them. And it was helping me a little bit. But because of my addiction, that therapy could only go so far. And I wasn't being honest with her. So she couldn't help me to the level that I needed. So I did decide that spring that I, I was going to be honest with her. I was really missing work again. The behaviors were picking up again. So I decided I was going to be honest with her about my drinking habits. I had Matt come to that appointment with me because I was very terrified that I was going to chicken out. <laughs> so he was there to poke me if he needed to. <laughs> Accountability, baby. That's right. <laughs> So he came and I shared, I just let it all out. We start, we kind of started some work on that, but then she got a different job not long after that. So (laughs) then I was kind of back to square one, but I did know, I was acknowledging at that point that the source was alcohol and it needed to go. So that summer I quit cold turkey. I didn't have any support at all besides Matt. Um, my parents didn't know at that point that I had decided that I didn't want to be drinking. So we both tried to quit that summer and it, we crashed and burned. <laughs> how, how long did you guys say, okay, this is it, cold turkey? I think we made it maybe like three weeks at the okay. most at that point and then before we would relapse. Very codependent at that point as it would go on for a little bit longer. And at that point too, when I would start drinking again after a sober stint, it was right back or more to where I left off. So it was really bad. I was going really zero to 60. Um, and usually that would continue like four or five days, like a binge. And at that time, when I was stopping again, I was having physical withdrawal symptoms, the shaking, stuff like that, the sweats. And so at the end of the summer, I decided that I I need to figure something out. I need to be honest with my parents. So I told my parents, I detoxed at their house for a couple days. And then I came home on day three. And Matt had asked me to go for a hike. So we went for this little hike, nothing like crazy. And at the top of the mountain, I had what we thought was a small seizure. It was day three. I didn't know much about alcohol withdrawal symptoms and it was day three. So I thought I was in the clear, like I'm good. I would have never but, thought like, but I would have never thought of going hiking because it, <laughs> it's like if it, you're at a different age group and your mindset is a little bit different to where like you're probably I'm okay now. Yeah. And it was like a normal thing for us to do. So I didn't really think anything of it. Like, oh, I should take care of my body more. Like I felt fine when we left for the hike. So I didn't really think anything of it. And I had a, I ended up having what we thought was a small seizure at the top of the mountain. And where I was standing, I was on all rock too. And luckily Matt was right next to me because he had to catch me. Otherwise I would have hit my head and I bit my tongue too. Oh. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was a very giant wake up call. So at that point, I had remembered that my therapist had mentioned Aware Recovery Care, which is a program that is designed to be a year long. And you have a care coordinator who's usually a nurse and then two recovery advisors that are on your team and kind of monitor how you're doing and meet with you and come up with coping strategies and skills. It was something I was very interested in because they would meet with you in your home. So it was, I could still be working full time and they would work around my work schedule and meet me at my house or lots of times this last go around with them. I met, we would always meet at this Duncan's that's near my house (laughs) and just get coffee. And like, that was something that appealed to me so much more than some of the way these, some other programs are designed. So it was something I was willing to do right off the bat. And so I started with them. I really liked the program from the start. Um, And I liked my, one of my recovery advisors in particular that time around, I really clicked with her and she had a lot of knowledge. She was about eight years sober. She's awesome. So it went really well for about three months. Uh, I was doing a lot better at work. People were noticing changes in me. So that was motivating. But then I, once the holidays came, I relapsed. That's kind of how it started. I wanted to be involved in all the celebration and <laughs> all the holiday stuff that I would usually do, like decorating my Christmas tree. Like I would always get peppermint vodka <laughs> like to do that. So I wanted that. I was like, I want my peppermint vodka. I'm doing it. As it goes, I picked up where I left off and then some. And I was right back to the behavior I hated so much, like calling out of work and being unreliable. Um, I was right back to that. So I wanted to get serious again. But they wanted me to... My team wanted me to detox at a medical facility just because I had had that seizure history. Mm -hmm. Um, So they wanted me to be safe. I went to this rehab facility to detox. I hated it. (laughs) I was there for three nights. Um, They wanted me to stay longer. I said, no way, Jose. Um, (laughs) How was the detox facility? What was it? What was it that you didn't like about it? I, I can't speak to that like actual like program once you're finished detox, but the detox portion of it, like I had to go in like with none of my clothes, like I couldn't even have my bra when I first went in because they do like this treatment to your clothes to make sure there's no like bed bugs or lice or anything like that um, that would spread in the facility. So right off the bat, I had to go into a co-ed like section of the place with like no bra on, like just this big t-shirt that they gave me and like these big like pajama pants that didn't fit me. And I just felt like yucky and just gross. And that was like my first impression the employees there just weren't very welcoming or friendly. They were kind of rude and just, you could, you just got an air of like that. They thought you were scum for being there. And it was just like, not a good vibe at all. From the second I was there, I was like, I'm just going to, once I physically feel better and I'm past that, like day three, I'm out of here. And I guess that was the only good part of it is that I could rest. They wouldn't allow you to have your cell phone. So like I could rest without any like external distractions. So that was the one 
positive of it, I would say, is that I could really just focus on, okay, let's get better. I brought like a journal. So I do a lot of journaling too. So I kind of could shift my mindset a little bit. So after day three, you were like, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a little scared straight for me. So <laughs> I was out of there and I promised myself I would never, even if I relapse, I'm never letting my drinking get bad enough that I would have to come here again. Like really had that ingrained in my mind because I hated it so much. Right. So I did well for a couple months after that. Um, and then COVID hit March 2020. It was very abrupt where I was at school as it was for many. And it was like one day we were at school, like doing our thing. And the next day it was like, nope, you're all home. So it was very like all of a sudden working from home that first end of the school year that we were working through it. We didn't have it figured out yet. So it was very lax with what we would have to do, like what our um, responsibilities and work requirements were. It was very enabling of my drinking to pick back up again. I didn't risk calling out of work because I was already at work. So I, and I could kind of hide because we didn't have it figured out yet. So I could start drinking like early afternoon. So things just picked right back up. That it picked right back up to where it had before or what was happening at that time? At that time, I, I did really, really respect my recovery advisor. And I really liked the program still. And I liked doing the recovery work with them. I really did. So I was latched on to that a little bit still. So I would kind of alternate between drinking a lot, (laughs) being sober and like really working my program and trying to moderate. A good way I describe my mindset around that time is from Laura McGowan's book, we are the luckiest. She talks about there being only two doors, like one where you would choose sobriety and the other one where you would choose drinking. But I was in the mindset that she describes where you're searching for that third door, like moderation or like some way that you can still drink and not have it be like a shit show out of control. (laughs) And that's what I was doing. I was searching for that door. I wanted it to exist so freaking bad. But it doesn't <laughs> for an alcoholic like me. So, <laughs> <laughs> for any of us, you know, <laughs> the truth we're looking for that third door and we're like, the moderation door isn't there. It's just like, not yeah, do you know? So, I was, yeah, and I was in that mode at that time. I really wanted to keep drinking, but I really liked recovery too. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, was, I was in this weird, like, in between phase, I guess, of my journey. And I started smart recovery meetings around that time online. It was during COVID. So that was something awesome that came out of COVID is that we were doing these Zoom meetings online. And I really liked the smart recovery meetings. And I was really taking pieces of what people were saying at those meetings and storing them, I guess, at that time. So are we still looking for that third door during the smart recovery? Oh yeah. I'm still I'm still looking for that third door, but I'm also I'm listening more. Right. And, right. and I'm storing information. So during that time where I'm still looking for that third door, I have one night where I'm just completely like off the rails, like day drinking, and I ran out of alcohol. 
So I decided to get behind the wheel of my car and go get some more alcohol at the gas station. When I got to the gas station, I looked in my, I remember looking in my rear view mirror and I was like, I look like a lunatic right now. Like I cannot, <laughs> I cannot walk into the store. They're not going to sell anything to me. <laughs> so, and, and this is not a good idea. So I turned around and I went home without getting more alcohol. Someone had seen me driving and I was crossing the yellow line. They called me in. And as I was pulling into my driveway, the cop lights came. (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) And where was Matt as this was? Matt Matt was also very intoxicated in our home. He may have even been passed out at that, that time. I don't remember. So he was inside and they knocked and said, you know, told him what was going on. And um, they gave me a field sobriety test, which I failed miserably. Excuse me. I refused the breathalyzer. They cuffed me and took me down to the station. I can't even imagine what you must have felt. And especially right in your driveway. Well, yeah, I was like worried about my my neighbors, like wondering like what the hell is going on. Luckily, like around my house is pretty wooded. So I was like crossing my fingers like they were sleeping and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> didn't know what was going on. <laughs> but yeah, it was a pretty eye-opening, I guess, situation. A couple days before that happened too, Matt had been experiencing some heart palpitations and I had to take him to the ER for that. So there, those two things really stuck out at that time as, you know, like these are really terrible things that happened, but how much worse do you want it let this get like it's still nothing catastrophic like how how far are you going to let this go before enough is enough right was i so you at least had that those thoughts popping in i did and one of the pieces of information i had stored away from the smart recovery meetings was ias i am sober app and i remembered that and i was like that sounds like a new tool i could add that might be helpful to me did you know um, who it was at the time when you... The man in the smart recovery meeting described it mostly for the counter, not mm-hmm. as much the community. He was saying like, oh, I have this app. It counts down my sober days. Um, it's been really motivating for me. I think he mentioned the community, something like he like peeked in, but he doesn't didn't participate. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was like, oh, that's there. If you want to do that. And I'd written it down. So I added it at that time. I thought it would be, I was trying, I was already in aware recovery program. I'm like, what can I change here? What else, what other layer can I put in? So I downloaded the app. I was recovery ash back then. (laughs) (laughs) OG. (laughs) (laughs) So I went on the app I saw like other people talking about anxiety from drinking and I was like, Oh my God, like they get that too. And it was because Matt never really got the anxiety thing as much as I did. So Mm -hmm. it was really refreshing to hear that it happened to other people too. Reading the stories, I just related to so much of it and I felt not so lonely anymore. I really liked that it grouped you 
with the people on the same day as you. So you could kind of compare how you were feeling. And then sure enough, you would see like, oh, it's not weird that I have a giant headache right now. Or <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So I felt way less lonely. And I would post from time to time, nothing 100% transparent and honest. Like I would not mention my DUI because I was afraid even on the sober app that people would judge me <laughs> for my DUI. So I wasn't like a hundred percent out there, but I was starting to get my feet wet. I'd say you're dipping your toe in. Thigh. Yep. <laughs> yep. Slowly. I was warming up to the idea around that time. I ended at the end of the summer. I ended with a wear recovery for my first time around with them. Wasn't coming at a great time because I was just entering into dealing with the consequences of my DUI. So I ended up pleading guilty to the DUI. And from that, I had to do an assessment with them to determine what kind of what level my the program they would have me complete would be, and what the requirements for me to get my license back would be. So I was 100% honest in the assessment. I'm sure I could have lied and had it (laughs) work in my favor that I could have gotten my license back sooner. But I was honest. At that point, I really wanted help. And I, I just wanted to be sober. And I just didn't really know what to do at that point. So I ended up having to do the little program that they have designed to get your license back. I had to take a defensive driving course. And then I had to have random urine tests that they would give me, which are very sensitive, by the way. (laughs) They'll know. Drank like three days previous. They'll know when they, and they call you and they say, you have 24 hours to go get this urine test. So you have to do it within the time. And if you don't go and do it, then that's counted as a, as a positive test. So it was very, it felt, the program felt very punitive. If that were my first encounter with recovery, I would start drinking again (laughs) after because it is not, it was not designed to really be a support. It felt very shaming and it, I just really didn't like the way it was designed at all. So I ended up going, well, I deleted IAS for a while um, after I had relapsed the end of 2020. Mm-hmm. I deleted it. And then I was kind of just doing my own thing for a while. Therapy um, was really the only thing that I was doing consistently during that time. So I was back searching for my third door. <laughs> Quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But my my relapses were becoming less and my sober time was becoming more at that point. And I was getting back up on my feet faster when I did relapse. It was I wanted it at that point. I really did. I'm more conscious that this was the issue and that the third door was becoming less of an option. Yeah. And at that point, I had really great examples of two months sobriety, three months sobriety. So I knew I had a very good taste of what that looked like. And I knew how much better it was. I knew it was better than what I was doing. It was just a matter of what else do I need to do to get there? 
Continue on. So what happened? So you're off of the app of IAS. You're doing therapy. Yep. And I, like I said, I have those like good streaks. The relapses are becoming less and less. I know that sobriety is better. At that time, a lot of the reason for my falling and for Matt's falling is we were so codependent on each other. And it was always one person like kind of planting the seed, like "Hmm, some drinks would be nice and just poking until, okay, let's do it. So there was a lot of that going on. And that usually was the start of either me poking him to try to get Mm -hmm. alcohol or vice versa. And it didn't take a whole lot to get the other person to give in. <laughs> well, it's your drinking buddy, right? It's yep. <laughs> as much as the alcohol is a drinking buddy. And it was exhausting too. It was all these like little bargains like, oh, ju- we just will tonight. And then <laughs> tomorrow we'll go back to sobriety. There was a lot of that. The beginning of the summer of 2021... I got really serious again. So I, I got the app back. I was really consistent on there. Um, I was really connecting with people like Melancholy Cat, Jesper, who's still mm-hmm. kicking on the app. We were starting off at the same time and supporting each other. Jen Calibernia, who's still kicking on there too. I was writing. She puts out a sober train every day, which she does to this day. Awesome. Yeah, I was riding that sober train and posting under there. And summer went well for the most part. There were like a couple little hiccups, like I drank during my vacation that we had. But overall, I did really well during the summer. And I really was relying on IAS a lot. And I didn't have IAS when I went on my vacation. I didn't have good internet where we ended up going. So IAS was becoming a bigger part of my recovery. As you were building your sober crew. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I was allowing myself to be more open to with what I was sharing. So I ended up completing the program to get my license back. But that also meant that I didn't have that giant carrot to get my license back. No more urine tests. No more them checking up on me, make sure I'm doing okay in therapy. None of that anymore. So that layer of accountability gone. And I was also at the same time beginning the new school year. And this was the first time that the students were coming back full time after COVID and being home. So the group that I of kids that I had came in wild. (laughs) And really from home. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So that was like a big shell shock for me was just how many behaviors we were dealing with. And another thing was we had a new teacher come on to our team that I would have to co-teach math with. And she just ended up being this really nasty person, just really nasty to me, kids, like everyone around us, just not a, not a good person to right. be around. Um, and that's something I really let impact me going in. And I went back to drinking to deal with it. I, I call it drinking at her. Like I would, I would go home and like, well, I'm going to drink at you. <laughs> I'll show you. <laughs> so, but the, it turned out the only person I was hurting was myself. And I went back to missing work again and it got bad. Like I was missing 
like a full week at a time because I couldn't get my shit together. It used to be that like, at least by Wednesday in the week, I could get my shit together. But it got to the point where I'd just be like wiped out for the whole week. I didn't didn't care. I didn't want to go there at all. And that kind of made me not care to be sober. So would you say that looking back, because we do know the science behind it, but would you say in your experience that looking back each and every time was just getting amping up and becoming worse? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because I mean, driving drunk was something I told myself that I would never do, but I did it. But I mean, that was something that I said, well, I'm never going to do this, but I did. And I would have done worse behaviors eventually too, because it just takes over. The alcohol just completely takes over. So yeah, I would say if I continued, if I were to pick up a drink tonight, like it would ramp up right to where it was, if if not worse. Yeah, definitely. That's exactly what we know today with alcohol. You know, it picks up where we left off plus our sober time. So yeah, it's it's knowledge is power and it's good to know this information and, and share it within our journey because we can see the patterns of how we can see it in, within ourselves, you know, and you telling your story, it shows how we, we don't, we don't think that we're going to end up doing all the things that we go through. No. Drink, right. <laughs> right. Right. When I had my first drink in high school, I wasn't like, I really hope I get a DUI someday. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. It's so yep. surprise our own self who we become the people that we become in the addiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. So what happened? Um, so you're drinking at this miserable teacher. <laughs> yeah. I'm drinking is out of control again, missing the full weeks of work. My boss is knocking at my door again. Like, Hey, like what's going on? Still in a very like supportive way. Um, and I, I've shared with my assistant principal and principal, like everything about my alcoholism and recovery and where I've been very honest about where I'm at in that stage of my journey too. So she just came in and was like, what are we going to do here? (laughs) That's very brave. Very, very brave. Yeah. And luckily they're amazing people and have been such a huge support to me. So at that point, this was November of last year and I was back on the app. This time Ash is here because (laughs) I changed my name to Ash is here because I'm here and I'm here for it. And I'm here to be honest and I'm here, I'm here to do this now. (laughs) That's kind of why I changed my name to that. I love it. It's like busting the doors open, kicking it down. Ash is here. Yeah, here I am, everyone. At that point, November of last year, I started the same exact recovery program again for the second time. And this time, I really had my eye on the prize. And I really... I told myself, I'm going to be honest with my recovery advisors, whatever it is that's going on. I'm going to, I'm going to tell them if I drank, I'm going to tell them, um, I'm going to work their program the way it's designed to be. I'm not going to cancel appointments. If I have a long day at work, I'm going to keep my appointment. And 
So I had my eye set at that time on January 1st, 2022. I really had it in my head. 2022 is my year. (laughs) I'm done with this like relapse business. (laughs) I'm going to do this. (laughs) I love that. I love that. And it was just you, right? You had made the decision for you. Mm -hmm. I made that decision for me that this... I was going to do this and I was going to do it regardless of what Matt was doing. Matt really had January 1st as a start date in his head too, when we were kind of looking at it from December and he started off with me January 1st. I knew at that point that even though we were having the same start date, that I had to treat my journey as 100% separate from his. And if he was going to choose to drink that I didn't have to, I could make a different choice because in the past I was always making the choice that I was going to drink too. There were maybe like one or two times where I was like, no, I'm not going to. But for the most part, if he was drinking, I was too. So I had a giant mindset shift, giant. I picked a new year's resolution to uphold my commitments and follow through. So that meant never canceling on people, my therapist or my recovery advisors. I was going to show up no matter what state I was in because the times I was canceling the last time I did the program were the times I needed them the most. (laughs) I also, I'm pretty, I used to be pretty notorious for making these very lofty goals for myself and making a lot of goals to tackle at once. And I was going to always like, fix everything at the same time. And it's something like when I first was in therapy that we kind of work started working on was that I was setting these unreasonable expectations for myself. (laughs) So in back in January, I read Atomic Habits and that really helped me to realistically figure out how I was going to achieve the things that I wanted in my life. I also started journaling and I found a really awesome weekly journal on Amazon that I use. And it really helps me to hone in on my goals week to week and really set them in an achievable way so that I'm not feeling like a failure at all. So that's been great. Um, when I used to journal in the past, that was another thing I failed at a lot because I would say, I'm going to journal every morning or every night or both. And then I wouldn't. And then I'd stop doing it all together because I felt like a failure. So this was something that I was able to stick to really helped me week to week. I also started being really honest on IAS. I would post about my DUI and like comment on if someone else wrote about a DUI, I would provide them with you know, some advice or feedback from my experience. Um, I was honest about being anxious. I was honest about my struggles with Matt when he, because back in January, he ultimately decided to drink again. And that was something that was really tough for me. And instead of hiding it, which was my normal behavior, I put it out there like, Hey, my husband just left to go to the store. (laughs) And I'm struggling. And that's when I started receiving 
help from people on IAS like you, Viv. <laughs> Viv, Viv spotted me from afar and <laughs> helped me to realize that I needed to set boundaries with my husband so I could be successful. So I, I did. I set those boundaries with Matt. You followed yeah. through with them. And I followed through. There was one time where we were sitting by the fire and I could, in the winter, it was snowing out and I could feel the tension coming off of him. Like he w- was having that internal struggle as we do of, am I going to go to the store to get drinks? Am I not? Like, should I? Shouldn't I? <laughs> I could feel it. He wasn't even saying anything and I could feel it. He decided to go and he got drinks. When he was walking out the door, I said, fine, get me some too. And he said, nope, I'm not getting you any. If you want some, you can decide that after I get back and go back out and get drinks yourself. Wow. Yeah. So, so you had put the boundaries that you didn't want the drinks. And then when when he said he was going to, he's like, nope. You set the boundaries, so I'm not going to go get you any. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. He could no longer buy me anything. It was a boundary that we set. So I continued sitting by the fire. I hopped on IAS and put it out there and was able to receive support from people like you who had been through it. And Chef gave me some awesome advice at that time, too. I think being honest was such a huge thing because I was able to receive the information that I needed to help me. And I was ready to receive that information. I was ready to get that support. I wanted to be successful. Yeah. That's one of the beautiful things about IAS is that we all talk about, we start building that sober crew, that sober muscle and supporting each other on the app. That's how it all begins. Yeah. Something that I used to feel very intimidated by was people who were further along in their journey than me. So I would kind of avoid almost looking into the future of that. But instead, I started following people that had more time under their belts because I wanted to see what types of things they were posting, what life even looked like at that point. So that was something that I was more open to this time around. And I started listening to podcasts on Sobertown and I listened to Vibs and that was something that really helped me at your story, especially I thought, oh my God, this chick gets it. But listening to the story, I I think it was the big thought I listened to first, maybe. I loved it. And I li- that got me listening to other people's stories too. I had known Jesper from before. So I listened to his story and I listened to A-Rod's and no matter whose story I listened to, there were pieces of it that I could relate to. So there's always a takeaway from listening to someone's story. Like I'll even go to A meetings with Matt sometimes because that's what he's doing for himself. So no matter who's to follow suit. He did eventually follow suit. We were on, he was only on the <laughs> looking for the third door for <laughs> another for another month. So it wasn't that long that we were going through that, but by me sticking to my boundaries, he was able to come to some realizations for himself that he needed to. 
he ended up entering into Alcoholics Anonymous and getting a sponsor and starting to work the steps, which he's still doing today. He goes to about two or three AA meetings a week. Yeah. And that, and that's what's working for him, which is completely different from what I'm doing. And that's okay. (laughs) So it's no longer a codependent relationship. It's a independent relationship of the journey that you both. Right. Yeah. And we're able to support each other and celebrate each other in our own separate journeys. Yeah. Um, yeah, Which has been a a really, it's been a a really amazing thing and unexpected victory, I guess. And I'm really proud of him for what he's done with his journey. So then I think at that point, I remember Polly, I bring this up because I had met you and I had met better for my family, Jen. And I had gone to Polly and I had said, you know, I had heard that there were some chat like telegrams or something. And that's when I said, I have these two beautiful young women that I think would benefit Polly in one of your groups. And that's when Polly was like, no, 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 you're opening up your own group. And just scared and all grabbed your hand, grabbed Jen's hand. And then, you know, many more, many more came to follow, which will be sharing their story too later on. But to see on my side, the beautiful, you know, metamorphosis that took place has been amazing. Because I think you were very young. I mean, like young, what I mean is like very young in the, in being sober, right? Yeah. I want to say I was just over a month, maybe when I popped into the Telegram group and Jen's a few days ahead of me. And you with, with arms open wide. Oh, yeah. Yep. I was pretty amazed at the support right off the bat without even knowing me completely. There were some things that I had coming up too that I brought forward to the group. Like I was coming up on my birthday, which is a real a time I really struggle. Birthdays are, I think, and alcohol have always gone hand in hand for a lot of us. And I also had the history of the miscarriage happening on that day. And it had always been kind of a reminder of me not having kids yet. So it's a really kind of tricky time for me. And I put that out to the group and they were so nice and supportive. And I got that love that I needed around that time. Right. right. And then also, I think you started becoming more active on Zooms. Yeah, I started going to the ladies Zooms pretty consistently. I tried to go to the Sunday ones every week. And that was really something that was surprising to me too, is how welcoming they were. I had, I had known about them, but I was scared to go to them at first. But they were so welcoming. I mean, Polly was cheering on my milestone, even though my milestone was seemed kind of small compared to other people that were there. My milestone wasn't celebrated any less than anyone else's that was there. It's always a happy thing that we're sober and doing this. So, yeah, we're all doing this. We all started in, and that's one of the things you said, we all started with day zero. We all started with day one. Yeah. 
I've been at day zero, day one, day two, three, many times, (laughs) more times than I can count. (laughs) The struggle is never something I'm going to forget. And I'm always going to remember that and be able to provide support for someone that's at that point. Right. It's a beautiful thing how we reach back and we pull. You're struggling, you know, is my struggle. Yeah, I, I think it's so beautiful. So go, going back now that you're going on almost nine months, eight months of sobriety. Uh, I'll be eight months at the okay. end of this month. At the end of this month. So uh, going back to the eight months of sobriety, what are the major changes that you see, not only in your sober life, as far as with the app and everything, you can talk about that, but I'm really interested to see or to hear what's the changes that you see in your personal life, your work life, everything, you know, because sobriety is everything. Definitely huge change at work with, I had that situation going on with the toxic coworker and it ended up being kind of a blessing in disguise because I could apply the things that I was learning in therapy and with my recovery advisors that like daily (laughs) because it was kind of a toxic situation. So, and because I was being honest about everything, my recovery advisors were able to give me the support and advice that I needed. And at that time, one of them recommended that I read the four agreements. And that's something that really helped me with that toxic work environment. I was able to see the situation differently and reframe it. I didn't have to take what that person was doing or saying personally. I could focus my energy on myself and what I was saying and what I was doing. It makes me think of this this image that we post often in our Telegram group that has the circles of control. And in the middle, there's everything that you can control, your actions, your behavior and whatnot. And then in the outside circle are the things that are outside of your control. So that would be that person's thoughts or feelings or actions. And it sounds so simple, but it was so freeing to look at that and think, oh, I can just let you know, her nastiness go. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> Actually, I remember you tell you telling us within the group that even it was like kind of compassion. Like she must really have a hard life to be acting this way. Yeah. And I mean, I have so much more empathy now having gone through all of this journey because I know that outwardly for a while I was probably nasty and not a great person to be around, but I was hurting inside really bad. So I was able to look at her and think if she's outwardly that nasty mean, she must really be hurting inside. Right. Those are the lessons that we learn, right? And then you pass on those lessons to your students. You've been telling me Yeah, I use that visual um, of the circles of control with my students. One in particular loved it. And I told her, yeah, I use this all the time. And she was like, you do? (laughs) Like, yeah, struggling with, you know, like family members or friends or other teachers. And she thought that was so cool that I like actually use it. 
And I was like, yeah, one time it was a background on my phone even. And she's like, oh. (laughs) And so she started using it. And then we had this like, when she was struggling, we just had this like little thing we would do from across the room to each other. Like, you do you. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. So cute. Like, I've always had good relationships with my students. Uh, I think that's been my strong suit throughout my career, but the connection that I'm able to form with them now is just amazing. It's one of my favorite things. And I think I was getting a little tired after COVID of being a teacher, but fostering their social emotional growth is something that has really kind of re-sparked some energy and life into me as a teacher. That's beautiful. And also this year, you told me that because I thought I, I bring this up because it's such a big parallel to where before you were missing days and now all of a sudden they had asked you, they, they had asked you something. It was so good for your students. What did they ask you to do? To be a mentor? In general, I was just so unreliable before it, like I was, it was just so unpredictable. Like, is she going to be here? <laughs> is she not? Yeah. But it, but it be, when I was there, like I was on my A game, like right. I did a really good job, but when I wasn't there that obviously the students suffered because they're lacking a teacher. So after a couple of months into my sobriety, my administration and the teachers around me became more trusting in me and I, and would ask me to take on new roles and responsibilities like mentoring. There also was a teacher that was on long-term medical leave and they asked me to step into her shoes and take on an extra class to help those students out. That would have been something they never would have considered me in the past because I was so unreliable. But now I've become someone that is reliable and that feels really amazing. Yeah. And you do that also for on the Telegram group. I know that, you know, we mentioned Sobertown and how much you, you go in and you listen to the podcast. Also, I've seen you recommend the podcast in just so many different ways, but also you wanted to, when we were talking about this, Ashley and I, she emphasized to me that she wanted to bring forth some of the courageous ladies that have helped her grow. So I'll let you go ahead and sing the praises of the lady that yeah. helped. <laughs> So I would say the Telegram ladies group that I'm in is my number one source of support that I go to. I just wanted to thank especially Alex, Sober Gemini Mama, for her support and her just honesty with her sharing. That's something that really has inspired me to open up up more and share more aspects of my life with the group. Before this whole transformation, I was very shy and kept and didn't want to share any aspect of my life with anyone. (laughs) So seeing just how she shares about her life in such detail and color has very much inspired me to do the same. And I did want to shout out Jen better for my fam. She's kind of been my little twinsie (laughs) in the telegram group. We started off around the same time. She's a couple of days ahead of me. So she trail bit blazes and I'm right behind her. <laughs> I love that. Um, and Jen's been awesome. There was one time where I went kind of quiet 
back in the spring and she reached out to me individually and made sure I was okay. And I really appreciate that because if I am quiet, that can often mean that I'm not okay. So I really appreciate that. And I also want to shout out Jen Martha Wolf, who's in our group, because I have seen so much growth in this girl (laughs) in the past few weeks. And it's just a testament to her hard work and her honesty with sharing. When I was writing my story out, one of the central themes of everything was honesty and just being honest with ourselves, being honest with others in a group like that. So you can get the help that you need being honest in therapy, like I had to do when I was trying to hide my drinking from my therapist, just all around, just being honest on the app. No one's going to judge you on there. It's just the way you can get what you need out of it. Also brings back to my, my most recent memories of the things that you've done with Matt. You just went on. Oh, (laughs) You're like, oh, yeah, that. <laughs> <laughs> now it's like no, second nature to you, right? <laughs> Life has been much better sober all around. Like our, our marriage is no longer a marriage of codependency. We support each other in our individual journeys. And we're not holding each other back anymore from achieving our goals, whereas we were both holding each other back. I remember I used to hold him back from even going to AA meetings because I would get jealous <laughs> that he wasn't spending time with me. That's no longer the type of relationship that we have. We're very supportive of what the other person's needs are. A lot a lot more communication about how we're feeling, not letting things kind of come to a boiling point. Communicating with each other on a daily basis has been huge. Um, and we have some great results out of our relationship changing. Like we just had a, an awesome sober vacation in Maine and we were by the ocean. We were kayaking, we were hiking, doing a bunch of things that would not have happened if we had been binge drinking our whole trip. So it's just been beautiful to have examples of what that vacation looked like last year to this year. And it was just leaps and bounds better. (laughs) Right, right. And we went to a concert recently too. (laughs) And we were both kind of worried about being self-conscious with our movement and dancing. dancing. (laughs) Yes, over dancing, but we had the best time. There were like beach balls being thrown around and we were like batting those around. (laughs) We were singing and Dancing was so much fun and we didn't have to pause the fun by going in line to get a drink or go being in a bathroom line. We were able to be present the whole time, which is amazing. Yeah, those things are beautiful because, it, I mean, alcohol will be around us. But now we have the coping skills to know that alcohol isn't even where it took maybe 75, we've talked about the 75% or 70% of our life and 30% is, is, was us. Now it's 70% is our whole life. And if anything, even the alcohol that's around us is just around us. Right. And that's, yeah, I, I didn't know how it would be 
to be around that much alcohol because that's really the first time I'm around that amount of alcohol at once. And I didn't give a shit about any of the alcohol around. I really didn't. I just paid it no mind, really. Yeah, I love the I love the pictures, you know, that you post and you post of um having like the concerts and your vacations and your light, you know, your light is just lights out the the eyes are the windows to the soul and you can see so much love and so much um effervescence coming through you. So that's really beautiful to see. Thank you, Viv. And I wanna add that Viv has been such a huge inspiration to me and just one of my biggest sources of support obviously I'm not doing like a traditional step program or anything like that but I call Viv I call you to other people my sponsor (laughs) because to me like you've been the like really like guiding me um and you came at a time in my life where I really needed that extra guidance and support. And I'm I'm so grateful for you on a daily basis. I really, I really 100% truly am. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm humbled and I am so happy that you're in my life as well. So is there anything else that you would like to add? Or- I just want to add to I want to say something to people who are maybe tripping up often having a lot of relapses getting discouraged feeling bummed that they're at day zero (laughs) yeah about that what would you say to them that have the day zeros over and over and over again and they feel like they're not going to get the footing now hearing your story of you went through a where twice you went through rehab you tried that out you even put the app on you took it off then you put it back on again all those things that go through but here you are here you are and we're going to hear your update at one year which is like yay (laughs) yeah which is right around the corner i'm looking forward to it but what would you tell someone that had you know day ones over or day zeros over and over again and has a spouse that also at the same time doesn't start their sobriety. Doesn't it, you know, it is not, it's not there when they choose to, when you choose to start your sobriety, what would be the advice? So when I was in a pattern of very frequent relapsing, I had talked to my recovery advisor about it. And I was like, you know, I'm just getting so frustrated. I feel like this is never going to click for me. I'm just going to be in this state of like limbo forever. And she, she at the time was eight years sober. And she said, you know what, Ashley, there was this time my mom was driving me to rehab and it was my fifth time going into rehab. And my mom was so frustrated with me. And she looked over to me in the car and she said, how many times are we going to do this, Kristen? And she said, I just looked at her and I said, however many fucking times it takes. And that's something that just from that moment, I always took that when I was at day one or 
whatever, I would think about Kristen telling me that and wow, like she was going into rehab for the fifth time, but she's eight years sober now. So she just, as long as I keep trying, like I'm going to get this. I just have to keep standing back up and fighting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you're in the arena now. You're yes. Right. Downloading the the arena. Absolutely. Downloading the app just look looking in and peeking in and not participating should be applauded because you're at least thinking about it (laughs) (laughs) with all the other tools that come along with it that we never i mean we never thought that they were even there the zoom the telegram sober town it just yeah building and then friendships Yeah. And I think that's such a great thing too, is that there are so many resources out there, especially that's one good thing, I guess that came out of COVID is a lot of support is online now. So there's the, there's Sobertown, there's the Zooms, there's, you know, like my husband does AA, there's Smart Recovery, there's Refuge Recovery, there's tons of different things out there. And I mean, I really tailored my program very individually. Really, anyone can do that. Right. And right. Find what works for you and what speaks to you. And another thing that I just wanted to add is that something else that's really helped me in my journey and get to the point where I'm approaching eight months is that I see this as a lifelong journey. This is not going to be something I stop doing ever. I'm not going to be stopping my participation in my sober groups. I'm not going to fall off of IAS. Even if I'm doing great, I'm not going to stop posting there. I'm not going to stop trying to help other people there that were where I used to be. This is this is for life now, um, and I think that's something that's really important to acknowledge. And I'm here because of the connection, because of all of the things that I've done to be sober. Um, and being sober is always going to be my number one goal and priority because all of the other things, all of the other goals, all of it can't happen if I'm not sober. And part of that too is like even accepting new things in. Like I was added to a new IAS group in June. That's actually been a really nice new source of encouragement for me. And I like encouraging other people in there. And we started off of that, like a little book group where we're reading like quit like a woman right now. So I'm just very open now. (laughs) Whereas I think before this whole journey, I was very closed off. So I think that's something else to highlight is just be open to new things. Right, right. So I have to ask this question. I already know the answer. Would you say that sobriety is boring? No. (laughs) (laughs) So sobriety is so much fun. My drunk life was boring and a lot of time spent on the same freaking couch so (laughs) isolating right yeah isolating now my world has gotten so much bigger at work I'm open now so I'm meeting new people that I've worked with like forever but just never like took the time to have a conversation with and I'm like 
wow, that person's really cool. <laughs> I want to spend more time with them. It just opens so many doors, which reminds me, actually, they've had me watch Finding Joe recently. And I wrote down a quote from that that I really liked. <laughs> when you follow your bliss, the universe will open doors where there were only walls. I just love that so love much. That. That pretty much sums up sobriety for me. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Ashley. You are opening doors for a lot of people that are going to be listening to this. Because, you. you know, through through our sharing, you know, it allows for the person that's listening that is hopeless, that is, you know, has many day zeros to know that it doesn't matter. So... I thank you so much. Thank you so much, Viv, for everything. <laughs> well, you're pretty amazing, man. <laughs> no, you are. <laughs> All right, honey. Thank you so much. I love you. And thank you for listening to SoberTownPodcast.com.